Dr. Henman has spent nearly 20 years in full-time practice as a psychotherapist and educator. In addition, he has been actively pursuing his own recovery as an adult child for the past 14 years. Cognitive perceptual reconstruction, a therapeutic approach to the treatment of adult children of dysfunction, has been an outgrowth of these years of experience. Dr. Henman has published several articles on adult children and a chapter with his wife, Sonia, Cognitive Perceptual Reconstruction in the Treatment of Alcoholism. With the help of a steering committee of recovering individuals, he has founded CARE self-help groups. He is currently in full-time practice as a psychologist with Psychological Associates in Modesto. Tonight's presentation, Exploring New Program, a Blueprint for Recovery is Lecture 3 of the Journey Series. It is co-sponsored by Psychological Associates and Modesto Psychiatric Center. Dr. Henman will discuss Part 1, Stepping into Recovery. Part 2, Foundations of New Program. And Part 3, Reaction Compass. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Henman. wonderful. The last two weeks we've been talking about the cost involved in blocking off parts of ourselves. We've been talking about what it, what it means to be suffering from the autoimmune disease of shame. When we reject parts of ourselves, when we try to get rid of parts of ourselves, those parts don't go away. And if you remember from the first week that image of the man pushing against the brick wall and on the other side floating in a sea of, of shame and, and, and pain are all those parts of self that have been rejected in the process of growing up. That rejection process does not end with childhood. Often we continue rejecting parts of ourselves into adult life. Often depression and anxiety is highly connected with the amount of self that has been shoved behind that brick wall and that ongoing fear, just the panicking fear that somehow it's going to break through and devour us. That feeling of emptiness, like there's no one home inside, that gnawing, aching emptiness, the vacuum where self should be if it weren't rejected. The cost of that is phenomenal. Suicide, chemical dependency, all the different addictions have at their root that rejection of self, I believe. Tonight we get to, to get the good news, and that is that there is something that can be done. We don't have to be stuck with a program that we've been following. What happens is that we grow a sense of self, a self-image. And you can see the self-image thermostat from last week. We end up defining who we are, as I said in the first talk, by the reflection in the mirror of our environment growing up. We decide who we are. We decide what we're willing to accept from other people. We decide how we're going to treat other people, how we're going to treat ourselves. Once that self-image is formed, it becomes the directing principle in our lives. It says, I can't talk in front of a large group of people because I'm shy. 
it says, I can't be intimate with my wife because men don't show their feelings. It says that if I am angry, I have to hit because that's who I am, that's what my folks did, that's what their folks did, I come from a long line of hitters, I can't help it, that's just the way I am. Take a moment, take a moment and become aware of the kinds of definitions of who you are that make up your self-image tonight. Because what you'll find in that self-image are the handcuffs, the limitations that prevent us from change. I can't tell you how many times over the last 18, 19 years of being in people's lives and as, a, as a therapist that I hear people say, that's just the way I am. I can't help it. I want to be different. I hate me the way I am. I despise me the way I am, but that's just, that's just how it is. I've tried to be different. I've tried to change. It didn't work. You'd be surprised how many people come to psychotherapy with the belief that change isn't possible. They come to therapy, in a sense, to validate that assumption. They come, they work real hard, but because the image of themselves is that they are as they are, it's like trying to fight an uphill battle. They will make conscious decisions like dieting. Any of you diet? You know, it's a great way to create an eating disorder, dieting. You know, it's a good way to gain weight, dieting is. Because what happens is, when you start to diet, what do you think about? Food. You know, and the more you think about food, and the more deprived you feel at not being able to get food, you get resentful. And suddenly, in the middle of the night, the refrigerator calls. It's got that special code. No one else in the room can hear it, but you hear it. Come here. We won't tell anyone. If they don't see us, there's no calories. You know that, don't you? Huh? If no one sees you eat it, there's no calories. If all the food is the same color, there's no calories. If you eat it with a friend and neither of you tell anyone, there's no calories. You see? Dieting is a good way of learning how not to enter recovery. You take the strategy of dieting, do the opposite, and you're in pretty good shape of entering into recovery. Dieting is based on deprivation. It's based on being good. How often do you hear this? I was so good for three days, and then I was bad. And you notice there's always a smile with the bad. You know, like, which is more fun, being good? Or being bad, you know? And you can only handle so much good before you got to be bad, you know? George Carlin could do a good shtick on good and bad on dieting. I don't know if he has or not, but if he hasn't, he should. He'd be perfect for that. The fact is, when you are being good, you are not changing your attitude toward eating. You're simply restricting, depriving you of your intake of food. And then you break through and you rebel and you eat the refrigerator and you go to McDonald's and you go to Colonel Chicken and you just get a whole bunch of stuff and you're bad. And then you feel bad about being bad. And you feel so bad you say it doesn't matter. It ain't worth it. And so you eat some more. If you look at the up and down of dieting, it gives you a glimpse into the whole process of recovery. Because people in recovery, whether from depression, anxiety, eating disorders, chemical dependency, codependency, whatever sexual addictions, gambling, whatever the addiction or pathology, that the problem that a person is in the process of recovering from, 
if they approach it trying to be good, let me tell you how they do it. This came to me about, this story came to me in the middle of a session about 17 years ago, and it's always been one of my favorite illustrations. I want to share it with you tonight. Okay, your goal. Close your eyes for a moment. Just picture this goal. Your goal is to become a swimmer. Okay? Now here is how not to do it and how most people approach recovery. You stand on the edge of the pool. Here's the water. Here's you on the edge. And you say to yourself, as soon as I can do a perfect stroke, I'll get in the water. As soon as I can guarantee a perfect stroke, then I'll get in the water and start being a swimmer. How many of you can do that? How many of you can get a perfect stroke before even getting your feet wet? Think about that. Because only as you begin to change your self-image very imperfectly, they, they leave me on a very short leash here. <laughs> must be an issue of trust. <laughs> In the process of imperfectly changing that self-image, hear that imperfectly changing that self-image, most people enter that recovery process with fear or shame, self-rejection, disgust. I hate myself as an addict, and so I'm going to get into recovery because I hate myself. Do you ever do something nice for somebody you hated? When's the last time you did something loving and tender for someone you hated? I don't. Do you? Do you do loving things for people that disgust you? No. You get rid of them. You get away from them, don't you? Isn't that what you do? It's the same thing internally. When you use fear and self-hatred as your motivation into recovery, it will not work. Fear can get you, for example, abstinence being dry in chemical dependency. Fear can get you to, at least for a short time, break the cycle of binging and purging. Fear can get you for a short time to begin eating as an anorexic. But until you change your mind, you are only a, that far away from the refrigerator devouring you in your diet, from your old addictions, your old habits, re-consuming your very soul. So when you start looking at that process, when you start looking at the process of recovery, Ask yourself, number one, am I expecting a perfect stroke out the gate? If the answer is yes, stop. Examine that assumption. Where is that written that you have to do it perfectly? Challenge that assumption. It defeats recovery. Secondly, how do you feel about your current status? The first step in the 12-step model of the self-help groups is that we admit we are powerless over our addictions and that our lives have become unmanageable. That's the first step in the AA program. NA program, O-Readers Anonymous, a number of the anonymous different, different anonymous programs. If you judge yourself with that first step, Instead of saying accurately, my life has really turned to dog doo doo, clinical talk, and I want something different because I'm worth caring about, suddenly there's a shift. But if you say, my life is unmanageable and I hate me for it, and it's disgusting, and all of that, you simply heap on more shame. And yet, if you remember from the previous two talks, shame is at the heart of the problem. 
Because shame leads to self-rejection. Self-rejection leads to those big gaping holes inside that need to be either distracted from or medicated that create the problems in the first place. You can't shame yourself into change. On the other hand, when you say to yourself, you know, what I've been doing ain't working. Feel that for a moment. Just just imagine what it would be like with a loving arm around yourself. Notice the proviso, a loving arm around yourself. When's the last time you put a loving arm around yourself? Around yourself as is in transit, where you are right now at this moment. When's the last time you said, I don't like where I am. My life is unmanageable, but I choose to care about me at this moment. There literally is a crying out, isn't there? Can you hear the crying out inside? (laughs) It's almost as if there's a baby crying out inside of each of us. Can you hear it? What does that child need inside of you? To be slapped around? To be put further back into the closet? Or to be nurtured and held? As far as I'm concerned, the first step is not a statement of defeat. It's a statement of smartness. It says, if I go in the ring with Mike Tyson, my brains are going to be rattled to the point that I'll be useless for the rest of my life. That's called smart. If I take another drink, if I take another line, if I continue starving myself to death, if I continue binging and purging to where my teeth rot out from the inside out and my esophagus gets so scarred, from the purging end of the binging purging, if I continue going into one pathological relationship after another in codependency, if in my sexual addictions I continue to try to mask intimacy with sexuality, my life, my soul, the very very essence of who I am, shrinks with each step. That's called smart to recognize that. There's a talk I gave, oh, about five, six years ago. I called it North to Turlock. It was given in Modesto. Now, you could say Jim doesn't know his directions. But the fact is, if you want to get to Turlock from Modesto, and you head north, and suddenly when you get to Wairika, Most of us are pretty fast studies, right? (laughs) Sometimes even Sacramento gives us a clue. Wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture. And when we have the permission to say, we're going the wrong direction. My life is unmanageable as it is currently being lived. Is it a defeat to turn around? Is it a defeat to say, whoa, where's the next exit? And I can turn around, I can change my mind, I can learn a different way? Or is that smart? Make up your own mind. I'll tell you how most people do it. At least those that I've worked with over the years. They get to Stockton, Something's not right here. I'm going to go a little faster. You know? Now they're cruising about 75, you know? They get to Sacramento and they go, oh, nuts. I'm going to go faster. And what happens with human beings is when they're going the wrong direction, they go faster and faster and faster in that wrong direction. As addictions increase, the severity and the impact increases whether that be, like I say, any of the addictions, or whether it be depression, whether it be anxiety, it feeds itself and it gets harder and harder because you're going faster and faster. It's like, I don't want to admit I made a mistake. 
Let's, let's hear that. I don't, come on, I don't want to admit I made a mistake. Wait, let's get a little rhythm to it. I don't want to admit I made a mistake. Let's really feel how smart that is now in this time. Feel how smart it is as you say those words. I don't want to admit I made a mistake. So I'm going to take the long route to Turlock. <laughs> and if I have a friendly ship and enough sets of tires and enough gasoline, I'll make it to Turlock. Or I can take that first step and say, you know something, I'm going the wrong direction. That's all the first step is. It says, I'm going the wrong direction. I need to change my mind. That's all it really says. Now, if that's all there was to it, if we didn't have a map that told us where Turlock was, we'd be in a heap of hurt, wouldn't we? You know? Well, Turlock is somewhere, but I don't know where it is. Do you know where it is? Do you? No one knows where Turlock is. Oh, well. That's Turlock for you. <laughs> I'm going to hear a lot of grief on that one. Instead, there's a step two. And it says that we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to health and sanity. It's called a map. Any of you go to a strange state looking for a strange city and a strange location in a strange city that say to yourself, no, thank you. I don't need a map. No one's going to tell me how to get there. I want my freedom. I'll find it myself. Huh? How many of you approach going to Cleveland that way? How many of you go to 127 32nd Street in Cleveland without a map? Because no one's going to tell you nothing. Think about it a minute. If you really want to get to Cleveland and you have a sense of direction like I do, I get lost going to the bathroom. <laughs> and I go to the bathroom a lot. And I still get lost. I'm going to get a map. Does a map really limit my freedom? Take a moment and really think about that question. Does a map really limit my freedom? Or does it allow me the freedom to have a choice? I can still take that map, throw it over on the passenger side, and not listen to it. Not look at it. It could be a talking map, I suppose. <laughs> when I'm that lost, it sounds like it's talking to me. What, what can I tell you? I have the freedom not to follow the map. But I also have the freedom to follow the map. A map increases freedom. It doesn't decrease it. There are principles that work in advancing one in recovery. There are other principles that work against the process of recovery. There are road maps that help you get to Turlock. You can choose to follow it a little. You can choose to follow it a lot. But you'll never convince me there aren't such maps. I think the 12-step model, I think the CPR, I think there's a number of different maps that help find your way into recovery. The question is, do you have to be so independent that you have to discover it yourself? Or can you be free to say, I don't know, but I'm committed to finding out? I don't know, but I'm committed to finding out. Feel the difference that that freedom of allowing yourself to have a map gives you when it's okay not to know, and it's okay to find out. The freedom, the weight that goes off your shoulders when you give yourself that permission. The third step is that we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care and guidance of God as we understand Him. Now this is a big stumbling block for a lot of folks. You know, they make the confusion between religion and spirituality. 
Religion is a set of rules to live by. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. Religion is a set of rules, is a structure, an organization. Spirituality is a relationship. Hear the difference. I don't, I do care, but I don't care how you define your higher power. I have a friend that defines his higher power as nature, and he feels most close to that when he's fishing up by, uh, you know, Kennedy Meadows or up at Clark's Fork. Feels very close to his higher power. Other people, it may be Christianity, it may be some other organized religion. For other people, it may be a structure such as AA itself. The fact that there is a body of belief systems that help guide you. What's important is to recognize there's something bigger than Jim Henman, or else Jim Henman's in a heap of hurt. Because I know I don't know. And if I don't have someone greater than myself to turn to, then I tend to be crushed by the despair. If I can't find a map, I feel crushed in the despair because I want to get to Cleveland. Let's look at it in a slightly different way. I have hidden a lottery ticket. The drawing has already happened. This particular ticket is now worth in the neighborhood of $7 million. That's not big money for most of you, I know. (laughs) But for me, $7 million gets my attention. How about you? And yet, there's not one person that I've met who was crushed in addiction, whatever they did, that was literally crushed in their addiction that wouldn't wouldn't give $7 million to have relief. Those of you that have struggled with whatever form of addiction know exactly what I'm talking about. There's no price to compare with that. But I have this ticket, and I've hidden it. How do you approach it? Do you say, hey, Jim, where's the ticket? No. Would you? No. You wouldn't ask me, because then... It's impinging on your freedom, right? If I say, well, you know, uh, Ron, it's, uh, no, Jim, don't tell me. No, 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 I'll find it. And you start tearing up Modesto looking for the, the lottery ticket. Or would you say to yourself, hey, Jim, where's the ticket? Would $8 million be worth asking for help, would that be enough motivation to allow you the permission to ask for guidance? Or is your sense of freedom so fragile that any guidance at all destroys your individuality? If it's that fragile, then that's its own issue. And it's a separate issue from the issue of allowing yourself a roadmap into recovery. The fact is that you need to have some kind of roadmap because most of us grow up in imperfect situations. Imperfect situations. And because of those imperfections, because of the reflections in the mirrors that we've experienced up till now, because of the self-image that we have of ourselves, we need a map that tells us there's a different choice, that tells us where the lottery ticket is, that tells us where Cleveland is. Take a moment and check out how fragile your independence is. Is it worth giving up $8 million?
Is it worth stumbling the rest of your life trying to find Cleveland? Take a moment and really think about that. I would like you to answer no. It's not that fragile. My self-image isn't so fragile that I can't have help. But the sad truth is that often, in the process of trying to exert our individuality, we give up those $8 million tickets. And they're free. That's real sad. The fact is that relationship is the very heart of recovery. At the very heart of it. I feel that way a lot. (laughs) Because the fact is the autoimmune disease in the first place is a break in the relationship between Jim and Jim disconnecting the parts of self. Because of that initial relationship break internally, there's a break between Jim and Betty, between me and other people. That comes as a natural outgrowth of the break between me and me. And when I have a break between me and me, and between me and others around me, invariably I will also have a break between me and whatever spirituality or higher power may be available. So relationship becomes more and more constricted and damaged over time. Now there's a number of ways of approaching the change process of recovery that have to do with relationship. I think if you look at relationship as having an older brother, how many of you have had an older brother or sister? Okay. Yeah. I have two sons, Jesse, who's eight, and Nathan, who's six. Nathan drives Jesse crazy. I think it's part of the contract of being a younger brother. If Jesse does this, Nathan does this. If Jesse does that, Nathan does that. He does everything his big brother does. It's like a clone. Did you notice that when you were growing up? That you would tend to do what your brother or sister did unless they told you to? Oh, there's a fly in the ointment. If Jesse tells Nathan to do something, there is no way in the world that Nathan will do it. But if instead Jesse just goes about the business of living, Nathan does what Jesse does and Jesse gets frustrated, and he does something else, and Nathan does it. That's life. That's normal learning. We copy people we feel good about, and we tend to feel good about our big brothers and sisters, if they treat us in some kind of loving way. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes big brothers and sisters can be jerks. I wouldn't know that myself, but... Seriously, I wouldn't, because I'm real lucky to have the brother and sister I do, and besides that, they're here. (laughs) So they're wonderful people. (laughs) I'd say that either way. But if you tell people what to do, if I say to you, I want you to do A, B, and C, you're going to resist. On the other hand, if I create with you a relationship a loving, caring relationship, it is natural to want to do more of what I'm doing. Some forms of psychotherapy do a lot of telling. These are good thoughts, useful thoughts. These are unhelpful thoughts. And it's true. But there's a tendency to rebel when you're told. Did any of you notice that? 
Any of you find that when you're told to do something, you tend to rebel? Or am I the only one? Okay, there's at least one other person here that admits it. Kindred souls. <laughs> the fact is, it's useful to have a structure of, of what to do. But if you don't have that in a context of a relationship of nurturance, you're not going to get the, the modeling. So it's very important to include the nurturing, whether you're trying to change yourself or in the process of helping someone else change. The relationship is essential to that change process. And like in the swimming, if you notice in new program, it's an ongoing process of developing the ability. It's the ongoing process of developing the ability to make the following. It isn't doing it. It's developing the ability to do it. You get your feet wet, and you get in there, and you doggy paddle. Any of you remember doggy paddling? You know, lots of motion, lots of frenetic energy, and you don't get very far. And then later, you learn to strengthen your arms and to move out your arms. You learn how to kick your feet, and your stroke improves. And before long, you're swimming. And you swim across the pool, and then you stroke yourself for that, and you feel good about that, and you keep improving. You don't do it perfectly. There's a commitment to openness and accuracy. It's like the first step in the 12-step. If you allow yourself to be accurate, then you generate choices. If you deny, you rob yourself of choices. And yet, you cannot have accuracy and judgmentalness at the same time. Because what you'll end up having is despair. So we need to set aside judging and instead allow ourselves to become more and more adept at accurate observation internally and interpersonally. Not to judge, but to observe accurately. A commitment to acceptance of reality in the present. All that says is, I am who I am at this moment. I am where I am on my path of recovery. It doesn't mean I like it. It doesn't mean that Sonia likes it, my wife. But it's an acknowledgement that I am where I am at this moment. I think the serenity prayer is very useful in understanding what that means. Because it isn't a passive thing. There's nothing passive about recovery. Recovery is an unnatural process. Change is an unnatural process. If I stand like this, I will not get from here over to the transparency machine. I must do something, right? I must put one foot in front of another foot, and I take another step, and another step, and I get closer and closer till I can finally touch the machine, right? How many of you give yourself that permission in recovery? How often do people say, well, I'll just see how it turns out. Heh, I'll tell you how it turns out. It turns out no program. That's where the habit strength is. There's an eight-lane three-way of old program. Habit strength going the wrong direction. There's a little dirt road, you know? A little tiny dirt road, big chuck holes. Yucca. Yucca road. That's what they call it. Yucca road. And you drive on it, and you got to drive real slow, or you're going to break your axles, <laughs> or something. But as you drive on that yucca road, something strange begins to happen. When you actively seek out the difference between what you can change and what you can't change, and you seek the wisdom to know the difference, and if you can make a change in something, you do it. What you're doing is you're paving that yucca road, and over time, it becomes gravel, and eventually becomes blacktop. It becomes paved. 
And what happens at the same time is that eight-lane freeway becomes in greater and greater disrepair. Each time you come to the Y in the road and you turn to the right, that new path becomes a little more paved, a little more of a habit is formed. Now, you're not going to always turn to the right. At least I haven't always turned to the right. And maybe you always turn to the right. I hate people that always turn to the right. I like imperfection. I feel comfortable with imperfection. But each time you do choose to the right, it gets stronger and it gets easier. And each time you turn to the left, you're faced with a north to Turlock situation, aren't you? Now, what you can do is either get really upset with yourself for turning to the left, or you can say, oops, I turned to the left, and you turn around. And you go back to the Y, and you turn down Yucca Road. And maybe by this time, Yucca Road isn't so bumpy. And maybe we take that sign off, and we call it living. We call it living as compared to surviving. How different it is to live instead of survive. Think about that. Each time you choose to turn to the right, it paves that road a little more. And the other road becomes a little more disrepair, but it never goes away. If you have had a clinical depression, you will always have some effect from that because you've known how black black can be. If you've had clinical anxiety and panic, you know the raw feeling of that. It affects you, and it's, it's with you the rest of your life. Not that you're depressed the rest of your life, not that you're anxious the rest of your life, but it does have an impact on you. If you've had an addiction, it will always have an impact on you. That eight-lane freeway doesn't go away. But it does become more and more in disrepair. The habit strength gets weakened each time you turn to the right. And that's the best you can hope for. I don't make the rules. But I really believe that if you say to yourself, that eight-lane freeway must disappear, you're not going to make it. Celebrate each time you turn to the right imperfectly. And that road becomes more and more paved. I believe at the heart, like I said before, in terms of relationship, of new program is a commitment to mutual respect and valuing. I believe every human being, including Jim Henman, deserves to be treated respectfully and to be seen, at least by Jim Henman, as having value. I didn't know that before entering my recovery from codependency and my adult child issues. I believed Jim Henman was a worthless piece of... The fact is I was wrong. He's a nice guy. As I've gotten to know him, He's a nice guy, but he sure ain't perfect. And he chooses a left turn sometimes. So what? I choose the right turn a lot more than I do the left. Now it feels real strange when I go to the left. It used to be the only path I knew. Now it feels strange to go to the left. And it feels real natural to go to the right. Now that's only, what, 12 years of actively working my, my recovery program? Just a snap, huh? You know, I, what really frosts my cookies, again, clinical talk, is when somebody comes in and says, okay, Jim, I gave new program a chance. I went home and I said to my, my spouse, <laughs> a little clue of what was wrong in the communication between these two people, right? I said to my spouse, hi, dear, let's talk. What do you want to talk about? Or, good, dear, tell me whatever you got on your mind. And it didn't work. You know? 
or they try to treat the other person respectfully and the other person doesn't respond in a way that they wanted. There's always a lag time. When I start responding differently to you, at first you won't know it. And when you notice that I'm doing it differently, your first thought is, what's up his sleeve? You know how trusting we are as human beings? You know, when a person starts being loving and you want them to be loving, but they haven't been loving, and suddenly they're loving, you don't notice it, and when you notice it, you say, okay, what did they do wrong? Why did she bring me flowers? Why did he bring me candy, you know? Suspiciousness is the first thing that comes once you notice it. But you don't even notice it at first. I guarantee if you try a new program, which means treating yourself and others in a respectful, valuing way, and the other things on this list, it won't work right away. It won't. But what will work right away is a sense that your soul is beginning to breathe more. Because there's something about mutual respect that gives more room for us to breathe, to take in healing air. But the other person may not respond right away. And you know something? Sometimes they never do. There are not always happy endings in recovery. Sometimes things just don't work out. That's not the fault of new program. That's not the fault of recovery. It's just that sometimes life sucks canal water. No matter what you do. And you need to understand that. Recovery doesn't mean that bad things are going to stop happening to you. It doesn't mean that when you get into recovery, you don't get any more flat tires. You know? That your boss isn't going to yell at you. That you're not going to get gypped at the, at the supermarket. Bad things still happen. The difference is the relationship within yourself changes. And with that, the capacity to have other kinds of relationships with other people changes. That's pretty good. I think it's worth it all to make those kinds of, of, of distinctions. The fourth is a commitment to a healthy parenting relationship with the wounded child within. We try, as I've talked in the previous two talks, we often try to get rid of those parts of ourselves. The fact is, if we don't reach across that brick wall and begin to make contact with, the, with those wounded parts of ourselves, we will not be able to afford to be intimate with other people. Because if I'm not intimate with me, I can't be intimate with you. So it's really important to begin to treat yourself as a valuable, worthwhile person also. Does that mean that you co-sign everything you do? No. Because the first rule is accuracy. So when I'm blowing it, I need to know I'm blowing it. And still love me as I begin to change what I'm doing wrong. Remember last week I talked about the difference between guilt, shame, and regret. Guilt says you're going the wrong direction. Shame says you are the wrong direction. You are, you are bad. You are not okay. Regret simply says, I wish it hadn't happened. It's a grieving for that. Healthy grieving that allows change to unfold. Like I said last week, I want to see more regret. Because if there isn't regret, then the change is going to be coming from the head, not the heart. The heart has to release that pain. Let the pain become fluid again before healing can really unfold. And part of that is allowing the scenes from the past to come up. Now, particularly, for example, with chemical dependency, you don't use a bulldozer in the first year of recovery. You know, you allow yourself to deal with the issues that are coming up on their own. And you deal with the two-year-old addictive part of yourself actively. In the other addictions, depression, anxiety, 
you begin, again, not using a bulldozer, but a change of attitude that says, I'm willing to look at the scenes that I've pushed away. They don't have to all be done at one time. You don't have to eat the whole elephant in one bite. One bite at a time is fine. You chew on it because it's real tough meat. Sometimes you chew on the same scene a number of times. That's fine. That's okay. That's really okay. It's not a race. Finally, a growing commitment to a loving higher power. I say a loving higher power. I think it's really important. At least I can't comprehend my own recovery without my big brother. Some relationship with some entity greater than myself that says, I care about the decisions you make, Jim. I'm going to tell you when you're going the wrong direction. I'm going to tell you when you're blowing it, but I'm not going to stop loving you when I'm telling you. I believe that's necessary. Now, however that fits for you, whether it be a belief system or whether it be an entity, no one should push on another individual. No one has a right to say, you've got to believe what I believe. That's not right. And if someone does that to you, run away. Run away, because they're not safe. But the invitation is different than shoving something down your throat. In the last week, I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the obstacles that we have grown up with in terms of the whole issue of a higher power. But suffice it to say, how comforting it is to me when I see myself blowing. You ever get stuck in the snow in a car? Huh? Good, I'm glad I'm not the only one. My relationship with my big brother is like this. I get out, and I'm not real mechanical. Those of you that know me know that I am not mechanical. I told you about my basketball hoop last week. And I look, and I say, I'm stuck. Accuracy. Huh? Brilliant PhD, right? I'm stuck. I get in the car, and I, I goose it a little bit, and this wheel spins. You ever notice that in life, how often your wheels spin? And I get out, and I'm real good natured. Oh, crap. Doggone it. I want to get home, and it's late, and I'm stuck. Yes, psychologists have feelings, too. <laughs> yeah. And my big brother does the following. He puts his arm around me and says, Jim, we're stuck, aren't we? Hear the difference? We're stuck. How neat to be a we. He says, you see that uh, piece of wood over there? Go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you put it behind your, you know, put it right here in front of your back tire. Okay. Put it under there. See that limb over there? Yeah. Why don't you put that in front of the other one? Oh. You know, I'm pretty slow sometimes. After four or five limbs, he says, now get in the car and very slowly put the gas down on the gas pedal and see what happens. That concludes disc A. Please insert disc B.